If you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 12 in your Bibles. Uh, we are on part one of a message that is entitled Chastening Children. Our second week in our family series. Um, for those of you that are not in the family raising phase, take heart. Um, the very fact that I'm turning to Hebrews chapter 12 to talk about this should help you understand that uh, when we talk about the, the nature of a relationship between a parent and a child uh, and how the Bible goes about teaching us about this relationship between a parent and a child, uh, it is not only relevant to parents and children in our society. And the reason why that is is because the way that the Bible tells us what a good father is, is by pointing us to God. And the way that the Bible tells us how a child is in, in, intended to interact with his parents is by pointing us to the nature of submission in the various forms, not, not the least of which is pointing us to Jesus Christ as God's son. And we talked about this a little bit last week. We'll, we'll, we'll mention it again this week. We see the same thing in the marriage relationship. Yes, not everyone in here is married, but that doesn't mean that when we talk about marriage, there is no relevance outside of that institution in society. And the reason why that there is relevance to we who, who, who may not be married as well is because when we look at how the Bible teaches us about the relationship between a husband and a wife, we are also looking about what the Bible is teaching us about the relationship between Christ and his church. And so there is relevance there. And of course, we will do that again today as we'll be intent every week while we will be primarily focusing in these six or so, six to eight weeks upon uh, the family relationship. There, there is great need for that in this day. And that is what this series is for. Yet uh, don't just tune out if you say, well, pastor, I'm past that or pastor, I'm not there yet or pastor, I'm, I'm not there at all because there will be things for you as well. And the first step along the way as we talk through the relationship between parents and children is this idea of parental chastening or the chastening of children. Now, the word chastening is one which I draw from this passage here in Hebrews 12. And in verses 5 through 11 of Hebrews 12, the Bible says this, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers... Then ye are bastards and not sons, that word meaning illegitimate children. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after our own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, immediately we say, Pastor, this passage isn't about parents. It's about God, right? And that's very true. But this is essential for us to understand. The Bible tells us that in these pages, we have everything that is necessary for life and godliness. And what is it that we find on the pages of Scripture? 
On the pages of scripture, we find historical accounts. We find poetic expressions. We find revelatory emanations. We find doctrinal instruction. And it's all intended to express to us the nature of God and his design for this world. It is intended to teach us about who God is and what God is doing in this world. And what we find when we dig into these truths is that God has taught us what we ought to do, but well beyond just telling us what we ought to do, God has demonstrated unto us what we ought to do in himself. So we find that the definitive teaching in Scripture, as I mentioned, on marriage is actually a passage in Scripture where Paul is teaching the church about its relationship to Jesus Christ. The foundation of marriage is Ephesians 5, right? If, if I'm going to go in, in a marriage counseling setting, one of the places that I will inevitably be at before the end of that counseling is Ephesians chapter 5. But what's so fascinating about that passage in Ephesians chapter 5 is that Paul's essential point was not actually marriage itself. It was about the church. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 32 and 33. He says, this is a great mystery. This is right at the end of husbands, love your wives, wives, submit to your husbands. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So Paul says that the foundation of his instruction was about Christ and his church, but as an extension of that teaching, let every man love his wife as himself and let every wife see that she reverence or submit to her husband. The most foundational teaching in the scriptures, the clearest teaching in the scriptures on marriage is actually teaching about the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And this becomes deeply instructive as it regards marriage, because when God created the institution of marriage in Genesis 2 that we talked about last year, he founded its design upon the future finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the relationship which would be established between his son, Jesus Christ, and those who would accept his love by grace through faith, which again helps us understand that marriage has design, definitive design. So God hasn't just given us teaching. He's given us tangible examples in our lives to relate ourselves to that teaching, in this case, marriage. Husband, if you want to know what loving, your life, what, what loving your wife looks like, take every aspect of how Jesus expressed and expresses his love toward his church all the way to the cross itself and translate that into your marriage. Wife, if you want to know what reverence or submission to your husband looks like, take every aspect of how the church is taught in the scriptures to express her submission and Notice the way I, I describe that with the church, how the church is taught in scriptures to, uh, uh, to su submit or to express her submission. And the reason why we have to say it that way is because in, when Jesus' example, we can look directly, see his example, and follow it because Jesus was the perfect man. Now, the church doesn't always do a great job of submitting to Christ, Right, And so when we look at the church, we, we are looking at what the scriptures teach about the church more than we're looking at the example of any particular church itself as it relates to submission to Christ. Follow the biblical instruction of what church submission to Christ ought to look like, those historical examples of when we see the church aligning with that and make that the foundation-wise of how you interact with your husband. 
And if you do that, then that marriage will, you'll begin to see how, how your interactions can co correspond to what the Lord has taught. Now, of course, all of this is easier said than done, right? Jesus was the perfect man. He was God in flesh. And as such, husbands aspiring unto his example is a lifelong endeavor, which will never fully achieve this side of eternity. But that isn't because we can't achieve it. For those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling, we do have everything necessary to fully realize Christ's holiness in our lives. The problem, of course, is that when I received the Holy Spirit of God by grace through faith at the moment that I believed, I didn't lose the flesh, right? The flesh is still there. The flesh is still present with me. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 7, that to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not, because this flesh is still there. Yes, the power of the flesh in my life is broken, but its presence is still very real, and as a mortal and a flawed man, I will always struggle against the flesh's influence in my life until the day that I step into eternity. But the point is that we have this template. The perfect example against which to measure ourselves and the manner in which we're interacting one with another for the purpose of knowing what marriage looks like and how to best live out those responsibilities and privileges. And the same thing can be said of parenting. Parenting has design. Yes, there are passages in the Bible which give us direct instructions regarding the parent-child relationship. Last week, we, we saw the, that initial example in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. There, there we are. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, uh, where Moses wrote, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. So we, we talked last week about this idea of multi-generational discipleship and a model of multi-generational discipleship where we are seeking to draw children uh, rather than alienating them from the generations that are above them or separating them from the generations that are, are, are above them, that we are drawing the generations together and that we are calling the elder to teach the younger and to invest that knowledge in them and for the younger to identify and appreciate the lessons, the stability, the clarity, and the experience of those who have gone before them, and to hold that in high esteem, and how important it is in the church that we restore a multi-generational idea and a model to the church, and then, of course, in our families, it, it, that's where it begins, right? It begins with our families. It begins with parents and with children, and then we added to this various uh, examples of parental instruction as they're laid in the Proverbs, showing us a template for parental instruction throughout wisdom literature, and we see more of those uh, as, we, as we walk through the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Bible says, as it relates to chastening, foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. It says a similar thing in Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. That word betimes there meaning in right season, when appropriate. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We see that call to train up the child. Of course, we know of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, which is a part of our memory verse for this next month. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. So we do have these verses, right? We, and, and we'll talk more about these in the weeks to come. We have these verses that, that lead us or compel us unto various snippets of what 
parenting and particularly the idea of chastening a child looks like. But in reality, there's very little practical instruction in the scriptures directly about a parent's responsibility toward their children. In the same way that there's not a whole lot of practical instruction in the scriptures regarding the interactions between husband and wife. And the reason for this is not because it's not important, nor even because God has not given us the insight into what parenting is supposed to look like, but because God's instruction on what parenting looks like is fundamentally built into his character, into his interactions with us. It is why he calls himself Father. It's intended to give us not just a picture of the way we are to relate ourselves to God, but also how God intends to relate himself to us. And in that, we see a picture of what fatherhood and motherhood should look like. Just like the husband can study the example of Christ toward his church to know exactly what his role of husband should be. And just like the wife can study the example of the church toward God to understand what the role of the wife should be. Parents can study the example of God the Father toward his children and know exactly what their role as parents should look like. And this is where the Hebrews passage that I took you to at the beginning helps us. Because this Hebrews passage is a wonderful passage for us to glean the nature of God's chastening. And we're not just going to talk about chastening with parents, but the chastening role of God as Father. It well summarizes what I consider to be one of the two primary elements of parental interaction with children. The word used in Hebrews here is the word chastening. That's one of the first primary elements of interaction. And then the second thing that we're going to talk about is relationship and the nature of relationship between parent and child. And we'll talk about that in a subsequent sermon. So we have this fundamental word that we find here in Hebrews chapter 12, speaking of the interaction between God as Father and believer as child, and that word is chastening. And this word is alternately translated in uh, our King James Bibles, nurture, instruction, and then as we see it here, chastening. The word means education or training or discipline. The idea of chastening is not just correction or punishment. And this is very important for us to understand. That when... The Bible calls us not to um, despise the chastening hand of the Lord. This is not only speaking of the idea of God correcting us, but it is speaking of all manner of development of that child and direction in the way that they should go. It includes intentional training, education, as well as discipline. And correction. And so what we're going to do in the remainder of our time today, this is a part one, what we're going to do in the remainder of our time together today is we're going to talk about the heart of the matter as it relates to children's actions and motivations. That as we set a mindset for what chastening our children is going to look like, the first thing we want to do is have the mindset or the intention of what we desire to produce in our children. Now, one more thing to mention before we dig into this concept today. Chastening is not the only principle that we find in the Bible related to God, the Father, and His children. 
This second principle that I've already mentioned, this principle of relationship is very important. All the rebuke and the correction and the discipline and the training, it exists in our lives. It exists in, in, in our lives toward our children. It exists in our lives with God toward us to direct us unto relationship so that our objective in these principles is not just to raise good Christian children, but it is to enable a proper and functional relationship between parent and child that fosters that multi-generational idea that we talked about last week. And this will become more, again, focused in a subsequent message that we'll talk about on relationship. So the four principles that we're going to talk about next week, and you can write them down this week if you'd like, but these are going to come up. We're going to walk through these one by one next week. Are chastening through correction. This is the process of compelling repentance. Then chastening through punishment. This is the process of teaching consequences. Chastening through rebuke. This is the process of correcting mistakes. And then chastening through exercise. This is the process of growing character. And while we look, well, while we find all of these concepts in this Hebrews chapter 12 passage that we're looking at today, we also find them among other places in scriptures. There are certainly other, perhaps better words that reflect this. The point is not the words themselves. Don't take these words and say, oh, these are the words that we're using. These are the words we have to use. The point is the essence of, of what we're trying to draw out here. The personality of the child with whom we're interacting, the nature of of, of how we're interacting with them unto this idea that we are forging a relationship that draws our children into an understanding, not just of ourselves, but of God. And as we look at these principles, they'll all be worked out in one of two ways. There's positive reinforcement and there's negative reinforcement. That's going to vary based upon the child that you're interacting with. And it's important that we as parents have both Concepts well in mind as we formulate our strategy for how we're going to help our children work through this goal of building relationship, character, and stability that is the focus of intentional child rearing. And so this week, as we think through these four principles that we will be talking about next week, what I want to do is set a mindset. A mindset that we carry into these principles of chastening. The mindset that God carries into his chastening of us as believers. And so we distinguish our responsibility as parents. Not simply to shape our children's actions, but the mindset is this. Don't just shape your children's actions. Shape your children's heart. Don't just shape your children's actions. Shape your children's heart. As I am interacting with these four principles of chastening, my goal in each of these four principles, the extent to which I use one above the other, the extent to which that reinforcement is positive or negative, will all come down to who is my child and where is their heart in the matter. When you're dealing with the behavior of your children, those are the two things to consider. Who is my child? Where is their heart? Yes, what they are doing matters. That deals primarily with their actions. But what we find in Scripture, what Jesus taught us plainly, is that what we are doing comes from somewhere in our lives. As parents, we cannot be content with simply compelling actions. 
What we're looking for is to shape hearts. As a pastor, it's that way for me as well. Right? The, the people that come to this church, the people that interact in this church, you do certain things and you don't do certain things. And we might look at a list of certain things and say, these are good things to do. And we might look at another list of things and say, those are not good things to do. But we understand as Christians that it's not enough just to do, is it? Because doing can be done by just about anyone. The question is, what is in your heart, Christian? And we'll talk about that a little bit farther. The essence of this idea is presented in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, in verses 43 to 45, Jesus said this. He said, A good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man... Out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. What comes out of a man is the product of what is inside that man. As I said, this is not just a principle of child discipline, is it? This is a principle of biblical discipline. This is just as true for you as it is for any child in this room. What comes out of you is what is inside you. And because God has told us this, and God acts as a father in instructing us in how to identify and root out these things in our lives, not necessarily to identify the actions per se, but the heart that would compel us to these actions, so too, parents, it is your privilege, your mindset, the mindset that you want to carry into, into chastening your children is, what is happening in my child's heart that is compelling my children's actions? And so a child disrespects you. Yes, there's an action that needs to be addressed there. But if I simply pursue the action and I get my child to the point where they no longer openly disrespect me, the question is this, what's, what's happening in their heart? Just because they're not going to open their mouth and tell you what they're thinking about you doesn't mean they're not thinking it, right? And if all I've done is get them to not open their mouth when they're around me, I've not actually built character. I've simply compelled action. What we're looking for is a child who will not in their heart disrespect me, in their mind disrespect me any more than in their mouth. What's happening in their heart that would compel them to such disrespect? That's the real question, isn't it? Now with little kids, of course, there may not be a whole lot happening in their heart just yet. Right? But as they get older, there's pride there. There's selfishness there. Maybe there's some entitlement there. Maybe there's some unforgiveness towards something that, some interaction that you had with them in the past. And they're angry at you for it. And it's rooted itself in there. And they think of it and they bring it up all the time so that they are disrespecting you in this area of life because of some interaction that you had a year ago that was undealt with, that was not reconciled, that was not 
clarified and, and they've kept it in their heart and they've been wrestling with it. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's confusion. What is happening in their heart that is bringing out these actions? Are they feeling vulnerable because of some other interaction they had with you or with someone else? Is it something having not, n- not to do with you at all, but there's some sort of guilt or there's some sort of frustration in their heart from some other interaction that is finding its way out when there are these things that work themselves out in our lives and you ask that question, where, wow, where did that come from? Don't just let that question be an idiomatic statement. Where did that come from? No, it did come from somewhere, right? It did come from somewhere. Where did that come from? What is the root of that fruit? Because it's bearing some fruit in this person's life. Again, this is just as relevant to any Christian in this room. Where did it come from, Christian? You exploded at your, at, at, at your husband or your wife. Angry. Where did that come from? Oh, I just lost my... No, no, where did it come from? Just lost my head. Where did it come from? That's not normal for a Christian, right? So where did it come from? Actions, words, reactions, they don't just appear out of thin air. The whole essence of the message of the gospel is that God's priority in our lives is what's happening inside of us. And when the inside of us is right, the outside gets right too. To this end, chastening becomes a twofold process, parents. Yes, we must, as we'll talk about next time we're together, deal with the outward manifestations of misbehaviors, of unkindness, external actions and reactions as they manifest themselves. They ought not act that way. They are going to stop acting that way. That's a part of parenting. But there's going to be many times where a complete interaction with your child may even just be on the level of the things that they're doing. However, whatever your chastening methods are going to be, however you're going to approach that, the goal in your parenting is what is happening in my child's heart. Where is this coming from? And understand what is happening on the inside that is causing what is happening on the outside. And as children grow, this identification will take various forms. For parents that are in the infant and toddler stage, you are in the exploratory phase, the learning phase with your children. You're learning about their tendencies, both in relation to misbehavior and in relation to their response to various types of chastening. My wife and I, of course, we're, we're kind of past that phase with a few, and we're in that phase with a few others, and w- with, with our littlest ones. Every once in a while, my wife and I, as we interact with the children, will look and say, this child has a temper. Take note of that. This child has a temper. Not every single one of my children has, ha- has an explosive temper, but a couple of them do. This child is uniquely selfish. This child has a laziness issue. This child uh, likes to avoid work. This child is so intent on getting praise that they're going to throw themselves into the work because they desire to hear it. They need affirmation. Right. And, and as the child is growing in that, in that infant to toddler phase, you're starting to see the kernels of those things in their lives. And every single one of those things, even if it makes it easy on you, Right? Oh, this is an easy child because they, they care so much about affirmation. Just a stern look is enough to make them cry. Great. They're going to be an easy one. Yes, but now you have another challenge. 
And the challenge now that you have in them is because a stern look is all that it takes for them to fall in line, you can't see as clearly what's happening in their heart. See, the child that's very out in the open, overt, rebellious, you know exactly what's happening in their heart. You know what you have to work on. The quiet ones, those are the ones that'll get you, right? Because you don't know what's happening in their heart because they're just going to go off and they're going to sit in the quietness of their own minds, mind their own business and stew on whatever they're stewing on and rebel in whatever way they're going to rebel, but it's never going to come out of them in, the, in, 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 the, in that way, right? Everything comes out, but not in that normal way, not in the way that makes it so obvious that I can just deal with it. I have to dig a little more. I'm going to have to mine a little more, that child. And so with the infants, we're starting to look at just those, those tendencies. Once your children are walking and talking and answering and asking questions, you're still learning, but you can begin to observe and even test the tendencies of your children. See, if I want to get to the heart of my child, then I'm going to have to start pushing that child and pricking the points of his heart where he's weak. I'm going to have to see, okay, does my child have a temper? Now, I'm not going to make my child angry, but I might not necessarily rescue my child from a position where he could become angry so that I can see how he will react to the situation at play so that I can find a little something out about what's happening in his heart. How do they handle rebuke? Do they fight back? Do they run away? Do they submit quickly? Are they hasty to please or are they headstrong and stubborn? How do they express anger? Do they explode? Do they go quiet? Are they, do they seek vengeance? Or do they let things go? Is it water off a duck's back? Or are they not satisfied until eye for eye, tooth for tooth? How do they manifest selfishness and pride? Are they active and assertive? They want that. They're going to push the kid out of the way so that they can be first in line. Or are they passive and manipulative? All of these things we're exploring in our children so that not, not just so that we can change their actions, but so that we can make a map of their heart to understand where we need to interact with them and how we need to interact with them to bring them out of their tendencies at the point, of course, where they've come to Christ. And this is a big part of that, right? That in those early years, what we're doing is we're seeking to show them Christ. And once our children have come to Christ, then we have a whole new tool bag of methods and opportunities by which to help them work into the Word of God and align themselves with it. And then as they translate to adolescence, that time which is different for every child, but which we see beginning somewhere 10, 11, 12, 13, your time with them in discipline should often, not always necessarily, but often include discussions to help them see behind the curtain of their own hearts. Do you see how when you did this, what actually is happening is? Can you see the selfishness in what you did? Can you see the pride in what you did? Did you see how your anger got the best of you? And in doing so, we're not just saying, stop hitting your brother, right? Or don't talk to me that way. We're saying, what's inside of you that compelled you unto that end? And through this strategy of how we're going to help our child 
navigate the tendencies, we can begin to do so in a manner that doesn't just speak to the fruit of their lives, but drives to the root. What is in the heart? So there are some children who only need a verbal rebuke, right? And at that verbal rebuke or that, that, that cross uh, look, they're broken and they're repentant. Other children need much more sterner forms of discipline in order to break their will. We don't break a child's spirit, but we break their will and bring them to repentance. These differences often come down to temperament and to personality, but they tell us something. The child who is softened only by verbal rebuke likely cares a great deal of what people think of him, right? That's why a simple rebuke is enough to change their behavior. And this makes life much easier for the parent because you can very easily direct their behavior with very minimal effort. But it also means that their heart is going to be, perhaps, in their heart could be a great amount of pride. This is one of the possible tendencies. Why is it that they're so quick to conform? Well, because they're very proud and they care so much about what people think of them and they care so much about how people view them that they are going to align quickly specifically so that people see them in a good light and people will like them. Now, this is a tendency that is in many of us. That we desire people to like us, and so we will align ourselves with the conventions of society or the expectations of those around us, specifically so that we don't make waves. Because we just don't want to make waves, we don't want the trouble, we don't want whatever it is. Yes, but we all know the downfalls of such tendencies, right? That, that becomes an easy child, but if left unchecked, it can lead to a lot of problems in the future. If my child's heart is that deeply dependent upon affirmation, then his self-image is likely going to be shaped by his perception of how others perceive him. Now, that can't go away entirely because that's kind of a part that's baked into the cake. But with those who struggle with what the world would call a negative self-image, it is incumbent upon me to help my child, if my child is struggling in this way, to see that the only person whose opinion really matters as it relates to that image, is God. And to draw them unto what God thinks of them so that they can find a stable rock upon which to stand in their heart. Because this child is going to become more susceptible to changing what he does to please those that are around him, more susceptible to what we might call peer pressure. Which means that as I raise this child, who is easy to raise... Because a simple rebuke can completely modify his actions. What I actually need to be looking for is the possibility of an unhealthy disposition in his heart to seek the affirmation of others as the basis for his own actions. And to work through that in his heart so that he can have a stable foundation upon which to grow. Because if he does not work through that in his heart and if he does not understand these tendencies in himself then that could very well lead him to pick a bad friend, make bad decisions, because he's around people who are making bad decisions. And I say possibly, because maybe he's just a a young man who's actually settled all that. You You say, well, my my son's always been a good son, and he figured it out himself. He settled himself, he knows what he believes, uh, but but he just likes to please others, and he's able to balance it fine. And and praise the Lord, but, but that isn't the only possibility, is it? And God forbid that we should just leave it to chance. 
No, because you're a parent. You're the father. You're the mother. It is your job to help your child understand himself and to help him work through those things that are in his heart so that by the time he is raised to adulthood, he has at least the, the, the groundwork laid for how to navigate his own tendency, sinful tendencies, the, the things at the root of the tree that bear the fruit of the actions in his life. So as you think through how it is that you're going to work through the process of chastening your child, we do so intentionally. We do so thoughtfully. Not every child is going to need all the physical chastening. Some children are going to be very easy in that regard. But that doesn't, just because a child is easy to chasten in the sense of, of, of physical chastening, just because they're not the one that's always being sent to their room, they're not the one that's always having things taken away, they're not the one that's always being spanked, that does not mean that they do not have the same problems in their heart. They do not have sin in their heart. They do not have things they're wrestling with in their heart. It just means you're going to have to dig a bit deeper to find it. It just means that you're going to have to look for the other manifestations outside of open rebellion because we all know that there are plenty of other manifestations of sin in our lives. Because what we're doing here, parents, is we're not seeking to modify behavior but to shape hearts. Because when the heart is right, then the good child, and I use that word good in the way Jesus is talking about here, right? There's none good but God. We know that. But the good child, out of the good treasure of his heart, will bring forth good fruit. The fruit will take care of itself if the root is right. And with that, we've set the foundation for our discussion that we're going to have next time on those four principles of chastening that God uses with his children. But as we close, as, as I said, and as I warned you at the beginning, I want to broaden this principle out. Already there's been a lot of opportunity for us to broaden this beyond just children to our own lives. But in reality, one of the primary themes of Jesus's ministry was to help his fellow men see that being right with God is not a product of our actions. It is a product of our hearts. This was, in fact, the fundamental conflict. If someone were to ask me, Pastor, what is the fundamental difference between the Jews of Jesus' day and the, the, the message that Jesus was teaching, and actually even to today, what's the fundamental difference between the basis for Orthodox Judaism and the basis for biblical Christianity? And the difference is this, that Orthodox Judaism, that the, the Judaism of the scribes and the Pharisees was a religious system that focused on actions. It doesn't matter what's in your mind and in your heart as long as it doesn't come out of you. If it doesn't come out of you, then you're just a normal person. You've got all of this stuff inside. You get angry inside, unforgiving inside, bitter inside. You hate people on the inside. You're disrespectful on the inside. But as long as it doesn't come out of you, you're fine. You're a good citizen. It makes for a stable society. That's religion. But what Jesus came is teaching relationship. That if it's inside of you, there's still a problem. If inside of you is anger and hatred and malice and unforgiveness, you haven't fixed the problem. You're only covering the symptoms. And that's not enough. So what I'd like to do as we close today is for you to think about your own heart, Christian. When Jesus was saying that those scribes and those Pharisees, they needed to root these negative virtues out of their heart, 
He was doing so to help them understand that there's more to the picture of a relationship with God than just what we do. And as you and I think through the tendencies of our children, watching their actions and their reactions for, uh, to form a conviction about how the particular virtues that we desire to instill in them can be, can be instilled in their hearts. Parent, it behooves you to first inspect your own heart and to determine how are you doing in this, in, in, in this journey, in this effort. You know your own sinful tendencies. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's dishonesty. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's irresponsible spending habits. Maybe it's manipulation. Maybe it's lust, among many other possible expressions of sin. But the question that you need to ask yourself today is, when you see the expressions of this in your life, where is that coming from? It's coming from somewhere, Christian. What is happening in your heart? What has been left unresolved or unsubmitted in your spirit that has allowed these sinful expressions against all of your better judgment, right? Because here we are, we're in church on a Sunday, we've cleaned ourselves up. We, we are, we, uh, among, among anyone in society, the people in our church are going to be those who desire to express themselves in a manner that is in line with the virtues of the Word of God. So then if you are still seeing the expressions of those sinful tendencies coming out of you, the question is why? What is in your heart Christian, what is unresolved in your spirit? So Jesus would give a a wonderful illustration of this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. He was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, and then he calls them hypocrites. He says, For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. And may we take this warning of our Savior to heart as well. That we are not satisfied simply by being clean on the outside. Just as I would say to any parent who I'm counseling on parenting, don't be satisfied just because your child is not acting up on the outside. What's happening in their heart? Now, that doesn't mean that you, you see a child who's, who's being obedient and respectful and say, I'm going to dig for something wrong with you. That's not what we're talking about here, right? What we're talking about is if my child is showing... If, 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 if I've got a rebellious child, they're showing those expressions. It's very easy to understand what's happening there. If my child is not showing those, I know that there's still sin in their heart somewhere. And it's going to manifest itself in some way. And maybe it's more familiarly acceptable ways of expressing sinful tendencies. Maybe the selfishness or the pride or, 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 or the ways that they're going to manifest those things are, are not as glaring or obvious. Give you an example. My children are hyper-competitive. Now, competition is not a bad thing. Competition makes us better. But hyper-competition means that there is a pride issue going on. If I can't lose, the question is, why not? And so, hyper, when I see my children competing with one another, I look and I say, good, because that's going to make all of them better. But at the same time, I also say, but what I need to be looking for in the competitive nature of my children are those 
manifestations of selfishness, pride, anger that might come out of them in handling their competitiveness because those things have to be resolved. And if I just say, oh good, my children are competitive, I'm overlooking the possibility of manifestations of where their sin nature could poke, their, poke out its head and ways in which I can help guide them into that which is useful. And so we take this warning of our Savior and we don't allow a circumstance in our own lives as Christians where we're clean on the outside, we've cleaned ourselves up for a Sunday and we put on our smile and then we take that smiling picture when we're all cleaned up and we put it on social media and everyone says, oh look, they're all happy and everything's well. And we say, well, that means I'm good. As long as pastor isn't coming up to me saying, I've got a real problem with what you're doing, I'm fine. As long as the people in the church aren't coming up and saying, wow, you're, you're really in a bad way, I'm fine. Well, well, no. What's in your heart? Excess, pride, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, selfishness, lust, covetousness, deceit. If those things are in your heart, then there's still something going on, Christian. Let's root those things out. Let's get them out of the heart. And what Jesus says here to the scribes and the Pharisees is, if you clean the inside of the cup and the platter, he says the outside of the cup and the platter are clean, but the inside are filthy. That's not a very useful cup. But he says, clean first the inside of the cup. And of course, when Jesus told them to do that, what the, 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 the natural way that would go is this. A scribe of the Pharisee says, oh, okay, Jesus says, clean the inside of the cup. All right, I'm going to clean the inside of the cup. And then he tries to clean the inside of the cup. And he says, wait a minute, I can't clean the inside of the cup. Which is why then Jesus would say, come unto me. Believe on me. And I will give you of my spirit so that you can be cleansed from the inside. So we allow Jesus to clean the inside of the cup. And if the inside of the cup is clean, then that which is going to come out of us, the outside of the cup will take care of itself. So let us first clean that which is inside the cup and the platter, Christian. And when at once the inside is clean, in truth, the outside will take care of itself. And while this lesson is important for every one of us in this room, I cannot stress enough how important it is, parents, that as you walk through this process of understanding your children, you are walking through it in a manner that is looking for what is on the inside and how what is on the inside is coming out. And not just the negatives. My child is generous or my child is thoughtful or my child has a tender heart or my child is, 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 is fast to, to give of their time. Uh, my child is very affectionate. Uh, these are things that you want to identify as well. Because these are areas that you want to help your children understand how to balance in their lives, to not be taken advantage of and to use properly for the sake of the church and for others. So we're identifying what is in our children's hearts so that we can properly then use chastening to direct their hearts into obedience and righteousness. Which means my method of chastening is going to be different from your method of chastening. Not only that, but my method of chastening with my oldest is going to be different than my method of chastening with my youngest. Because they're different. They have different tendencies. Different things are in their hearts. And they're going to need to be drawn out in different ways. But as we do that, let us begin, Christian, with ourselves. Echoing this principle that we find in Matthew chapter 7, that we first pull the beam out of our own eye and then we can see clearly to pull the moat out of, our, uh, out of others' eyes, in this case, our children's eyes. 
And if, as you listen to these exhortations from Scripture about your own life, you find the prospect of understanding your own heart daunting, one of the things that, that, that is unfortunate about the breakdown of multi-generational discipleship in our culture and in our churches throughout the ages is that as parents, many of us are having to learn how to do the thing I'm talking about for the first time when we see it in our children. I didn't get this from my parents, and so if I didn't get it from my parents, I don't really know naturally how to do this, which means you're going to be perhaps learning about yourself at the same time you're learning about your children. And if you find that daunting, if you don't know where to begin to to even search your own hearts and actions and motivations to discern what is happening in your own heart, why are these things coming out of me? If you find that you're not able to trace those lines, well, I encourage you then to come talk to me. And we can open the scriptures and we can walk through principles found in the word of God. And we can find the heart foundations for the actions and the responses which you're experiencing in your life so that we can deal with those foundations so that everything else can start to resolve. And though the message, again, this message and the next two will be on child rearing and chastening and relationship, that does not mean that we cannot take all of the things that we're learning about child rearing and chastening and development and apply them to our own lives as well because you are a child of the living God. And we have a loving Father in the heavens. And he is our example of what parenting looks like because he does it to us as well. And we do so that we may live to the glory of the Father, that we may build up this multi-generational framework, and that we might guide our children into their generation in a manner where they'll be stable, well-adjusted to the Word of God, to the society that is around them, for their best success. And that's what we're talking about here. But may we do the same in our own lives as well. May we search the scriptures to understand the root of where we are in our own lives. And if there are things that that we are struggling with, identifying where the root of that struggle is so that we can be right with him. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people and I ask that you'd help us as we continue through this series. I know it's a little bit of an unconventional way to teach on parenting and to teach uh, children as it relates to obedience and honoring of their parents. But I ask that you would help us through it, not just to orient ourselves rightly for those of us who are parents, but that God's people would all orient ourselves rightly to you and to our own manifestations of actions in our lives. I ask that if there are people who have been wondering uh, how How is it that that I can't uh, uh, get past this sin in my life? Where is this manifestation of this sin coming from? I want it gone, but I can't get it gone. I ask that your spirit would begin the process even now of showing them, of, of, of tracing them in their hearts to those things that are rooted in them that they have not submitted, where they are not aligned, where they are holding out, quenching the spirit of God, grieving the spirit of God in order that by your grace we might know ourselves and be able to work through the process of that sanctification and refinement process that, 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 you, have, that you desire to do in our lives. And may that form the template for then how we lead the next generation into the same. And I commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.